0: What's up and welcome to another episode of the Bacari Sellers podcast. I got to tell you that um, I'm a little bit refreshed, a little bit tired. We're just getting back from the Bahamas. Shout out to everybody in Atlantis at the Cove, treating my wife and I extremely well. Uh, But we got a special episode today. It's one of these very real episodes with none other than Malcolm Spellman. And many of you all know him as the EP and head writer for the Falcon and Winter Soldier. Um, but before we get to him, and before we get to this really dope episode, I just wanted to give a special shout out to all the fathers here. You know, being called dad is uh, the greatest title that any of us can possibly ever have. And so shout out to my father, Cleveland Sellers, my brother, Cleveland Sellers the III. Um, shout out to all the dads in the world, all of my good friends who are growing up every single day just trying to be good fathers. Uh, For me, I always say one of my number one goals in life is just to make sure my children are proud. I want to protect them, love them, lift them up. And so Kai, Sadie, and Stokely is every day. I'm extremely proud to be called your father. Uh, But on this Father's Day, uh, as we go into this next week, I want you to know daddy loves you. And now on to a very special, real, kind of gritty episode. I love it Uh, with Malcolm Spellman.
1: I want to welcome to the Bakari Sellers podcast no other than Malcolm Spellman. How you doing, my brother? I like that backdrop you got right there, man.
2: That's great, right? It's uh, What's her name? Sheila Bridges. Is that the name? Yeah. The artist? Yeah, Harlan Poirot. I can't take credit for it, though. That's that's my girl who who does that. She's the culture one.
1: <laughs> you I, And I'm not being held hostage. I'm in a hotel room in D.C. Usually uh, I have a much better ambiance than this. My wife puts it together, as you can probably guess. It ain't me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, at the beginning of our episodes, each of our guests, we we kind of start our conversations by having them um having our guests walk us through the arc of your career and you do a little bit of everything from writing to showrunning to producing to managing your own multimedia collective to managing a record label. Walk our listeners through how you first got into writing and what was your first big break that led you to being on the radars of major film and television studios.
2: It is. It, so the writing thing for me had always been something I thought I could do. And I didn't tell am from Berkeley right next door to uh, uh, Oakland and grew up in a very, very working class, old school, working class neighborhood. So there wasn't one. I mean, it's little. This shit is so cliche, Bakari. But I do think it can never be stated enough how much you don't even have a picture or sense that there's something outside of whatever it is you're doing when you grow up in an environment like that, right? Like, it's just people go to work if they're lucky. You know what I'm saying? And um, my girl, at that time, my girlfriend, now my wife, had always had a bigger view of the world because she grew up reading. I don't really read like her, right? So she's, she's from the Bay Area, too and you know, grew up, uh, I'm not gonna say rough, but you know, it wasn't a lot there, right? And um, she always had a bigger sense of the world, would reach out to people in Hollywood or whatever, right? So she moved out to LA first, and you know, I probably thought we was gonna break up, and then I got in some trouble in the Bay, and it was like,
1: it was time to go. It was time to get out of there, Did right? you get run out the Bay, or you just got in trouble in the Bay?
2: I'm not gonna say, because it's Marvel, That's another (laughs) story, but it was official trouble. It was, (laughs) it was, it was, it was time to
1: go. (laughs) Because I understand. Hey, listen, we not, we not, we not gonna stop your flow. Go ahead, I understand. it, It was
2: time to go, and when you get out to LA, the first thing that happens is all the people who talk about their dreams in your hometown in LA. These are all the people that was serious enough about it to go out and make it happen. And so I had to get real serious about the writing. I'm competitive. People I was around were starting to make it over my first few years in LA. And so I had to get real serious about the writing. And for about six and a half, seven years, I wrote, I was outside the industry, not really tapped in with nobody. Like I'd write shit and put it up on my shelf at some point. I'm not gonna get into the person stuff. Things were rocky, whatever, right? And I broke in with a spec script. It was the most Hollywood experience I've ever had to this day. What's a spec Uh,
1: script? Tell me what that is.
2: So a spec script is you're writing scripts with no one's paid you to write it. There's no one attached to it. You're just sitting in your house writing it. Right. And I submitted this script to back then. This is 20 years ago now. Um, a woman named Jean Williams, who was like the black agent in Hollywood. There wasn't really. There probably was two at the time, right? And I got the call Monday. It was a blind submission, and I got the call Monday morning from Jean. I mean, this was a fluke that she even read it. You know what I'm saying? And uh, uh, she was at ICM at the time, and she said, "You know, I want to represent you and start getting your movies made." And she like she was like at my house at 9 a.m. She on Monday, she was like, I'm I'm making this happen, you know what I'm saying? And I had a brief from there, I had a brief hot streak where because no one knew me and I had come from outside the business or whatever, there was a sort of excitement around me as being this fresh discovery. I didn't have no idea how to navigate success. It's not like I did nothing crazy. You know, I didn't get on drugs or beat nobody up, but I fucked up the run, like it, and two or three years after my career was on fire, like I literally went from being fresh out the streets to now I'm getting phone calls from the person who runs Spike Lee's company or this person who invited me to premieres. And remember Bakari, I don't know anybody. This is literally on, I mean, off on. And then I think I'm special. I'm getting out there. I think these people love me, right? And that this is how it's supposed to be. I make a couple of bad decisions on like what I'm going to do with my career. And two or three years after I was that hot dude, it just died for almost five years. And everything up to now, everything up till Empire was a slow, terrible battle to
1: get back in. Like, I didn't have no agent. I didn't have no manager. I wanted. Well, so let me let me yeah. ask you this. First of all, I, my question is written down in front of me that I want to ask first is how did you become so good and successful at navigating so many different aspects of music, television, film, and like how and what did you find to be the most challenging? And then I want to go back to your your downslope after you answer that question.
2: Okay, so. The entrepreneurialism, I think, was a gradual process that mostly came from failures, starting in there's some stuff I'm comfortable talking about, right? Like, there had always been ventures with the group of people I would end up doing music with and some of the people I ended up doing film with. Like, even in the streets, you know, the Bay Area, the Weed capital was back then of the country, and it was not quite legal back then. So Weed, with my collect, with my group, including the artist fantastic negrito who's the musician you know i work with i'm partners with him and i you know i you know co-manage for a long time we were already taking shots at trying to do things together and it always failed but it allowed us to feel each other out and and it's if if i can offer people anything it's not like I failed at these ventures and then said, Oh, I'm gonna start a label and be successful. Oh, I'm gonna start writing and producing and be successful. The failures became valuable after further failures in Hollywood, also. And the collective of information allowed me to circle back probably 10 years later, you know what I'm saying, to start to get back with the people I originally failed with and know how to employ them and myself. So, you know. It was a lot of trial and error, um, error, and when I say a lot, I mean like a decade's worth.
1: When you when you talked about earlier, you mentioned that you were hot, and then it kind of just, shit just didn't, didn't fly no more. What do you look back on of those scripts that you took, the direction you took at your career? I mean, it's probably, you probably wouldn't change anything because you wouldn't have been where you are today. But when you look back at it, do you ever like say, what the hell was I, I mean, how high was I when I thought this was going to be a good movie? It it it
0: it
1: is. I there. I, though I
2: wouldn't change anything because you're right. You got to go on the path you're on, and I probably you know who knows who I'd be right now had I had success younger, right? But what I try and impart because we work a lot now with young uh, black writers is the cultural gap between where we come from as working class people. I don't even know if it's a black thing, right? When you come from a working class environment and definitely a black uh, world, a lot of what you've been taught culturally does not apply in Hollywood. And the thing you, the first gap I had to get over when I go back and look at, I could shave 10 years off my career. And right now, with what I know now compared to then, and the first thing is understanding success, understanding white culture better, you know what I'm saying? And understanding mentorship. Um, like, again, these were all things, let me try and without burning up your time,
1: let no, you know. No, I mean, this is, this is, uh, you You are, some interviews I'm sitting here like, is is anybody gonna listen to this? This is actually fascinating. So I'm, I'm, I'm in gold. you're not burning up nothing. Okay, so I was, I the, the, the disconnect is this.
2: Passive-aggressive culture, right, is what's common in the Hollywood space. People smile. The short anecdote is, I saw a fight between a Trump supporter and a non-Trump supporter over a mask. This is in Huntington Beach. This is white folks, right? And until a punch was thrown, there were no raised voices and everyone was smiling. And there was a lot of passive-aggressive microaggressions. Our culture where we come from is much more direct and confrontational. And we assume it's better. It's really just different. And when you approach people who aren't from that culture like that, you can't get mad at them for saying, hey, man, that's you are violating how we move. You know what I'm saying? Your energy is different. Um, mentorship. I did not have no mentors when I grew up, right? My mom. And the I didn't know anybody who had mentors and the concept that there can be people who can have help guide you right was completely fucking foreign to me so much so when my lawyer who who is a g in this business her name's nina shaw she's just a major factor black woman who has been about us and the culture forever she saw Wayne advance bakari i was driving my shit off a cliff right and she said yo dude you don't know how to navigate this business. Let me hook you up with a mentor, right? I took that as an insult. I thought she was telling me, you're weak. You can't do this. You're not smart enough. And I was like, nah, man, I don't want that. I got it on my own. I can make this happen. I I, I don't need anybody's help, right? And I did, and I failed, right? And the truth is, now that I've been around successful people, All they do is ask for help. All they do is reach out to people. You know what I'm saying? So all those cultural gaps, Bakari, I would guesstimate that combined with the, the tacit racism in Hollywood cost me 10 years.
1: One of the things you mentioned that I want to talk about, if you can talk briefly about the box that some studios place uh, around black screenwriters is only doing quote black projects And how do you navigate that dynamic to be seen as a fully developed screenwriter while also still wanting to maintain the ability to do projects that speak to our culture and experience?
2: Currently, it can't be done, in my opinion, not comprehensively. The problem is the people, the racism in this business is coming from people who truly don't want to be racist. And that's very hard to untangle. They they want to help. Right. But the first thing they have to understand is so to explain to the audience what we're talking about right now, you will almost never see a black filmmaker working on a, quote, white project like you will not see the Bill Clinton movie written by black or black black filmmakers or directed by black filmmakers and you will not see the story of George Washington or or the the space shuttle in general like there are, will be exceptions to the rule but in general we are in the high 90 percentile confined to black projects we take pride in that except for there is an extreme overt fucking stigma on blackness in this business which is this number 1 And these what I what I said before is important. These people truly don't see it and believe it. They don't believe black money spends the same way as white money. So
1: if the fact fact check false, but go ahead. (laughs)
2: Right. So if Tyler Perry generates one hundred million dollars, they're never going to admit this. But all of us see it. They go. Yeah. But, you know, that was that came from black folk. You know what I'm saying? Now you got that money in the bank. But you think it's different and less valuable, literally. And they have no idea they're doing that. But the worst one is this myth of, and it's obscene, and it's an obsession of mine, is they truly believe and will try and explain to you how the truth is they just don't really want to see black leads overseas. We don't know why. It's just that way. And they'll tell you about the poster they had where when they pulled it in France or whatever, the people said we prefer to not see the black person on it. Right. And what that does is international is everything now. And international is a barrier that limits what kind of marketing we get, how big our stars can be, how heavy the push is, and what what the reach of our shit can be now. Anybody can show unequivocal mathematic proof that this is not true, but it's a cultural thing. And we have thus far not been able to say, like like Black Panther is a perfect example of what they say don't exist. And so you guys, let let, let me do this quick and your fans can extrapolate this times one million. Black movies don't travel overseas the same way white movies do. What about Black Panther? Yeah, but that's a Marvel movie. What about the fact that it did better overseas than all the other lesser Marvel characters, right? Yeah, but it's Marvel. Well, what about the Will Smith movie? Yeah, but that's Will Smith. Well, what about Denzel? Yeah, but his don't really, and there's nothing you can do about it. So currently, Bacardi, I would say we are firmly, and I don't see any of it changing in this box. And I don't think it's going to change.
1: Would you do another soul? Would you do a a soul plane too, or Baps? if somebody came to ask you to do that?
2: No, I got a personal mission. I have nothing against Baps. I have nothing against films and TV shows that are only for black. Not when I say only you make them so specifically for black folk that the price point and the marketing budget are such that even if no one else comes in, it can do well and we can respect and honor our people and that's beautiful and we are for that and we support it. However, our goal at our company is to prove that diversity is universal and that superheroes can be black and Asian. Listen, you ain't got to convince Marvel because if you see you, I can't tell you what their lineup is, but they are on it, right? No one else is, but Marvel is Marvel. So no, our goal is to try and, in general, do projects that are bigger, more universal swings with black leads, of course, right? But th- that's—I I just don't work in that space, Bakari. But I don't judge it. I think it's great that it that that it exists.
1: You mentioned your you and your wife, but your production company, the the Fifty One in Black Ball Universe, um, your multimedia collective that includes an indie music label. How did these companies come about and why was it important for you and your wife to not only be creatives behind the content, but to also become the management that helps produce, own, and license the content, which I think is so important.
2: It's funny, like, particularly with the Black Ball Universe venture, which we've now renamed Storefront, it came from watching the, the first artists we presented. We now have three or four that we're working with, right? But Fantastic Negrito, In his earliest manifestation, he went by his born name, Xavier Defrapoliz, and he got a million dollar contract on Interscope. Right. This was about 20 years ago. And it destroyed him. They told him because he doesn't do traditional R&B or whatever, they told him what he couldn't be and what he had to be imitate. And I watched it gut him. And as we were coming up, we felt like if we can build a bubble around creatives, you know what I'm saying, then we can prove that y'all can make your money and these creatives don't have to be put in uh, imitation, watered down destructive lanes. And so the real mandate came from watching one of my closest friends completely abandon music, you know what I'm saying, because these people come in and tell you what, what is a hit, what isn't a hit, how you should look and they base everything the irony is everything they do to destroy artists and steer them in the wrong direction is based on imitating artists who maintain their own identity
1: and this is a, i mean we're not and talking I, about some lame we're talking about a grammy award winning musician here
2: yeah <laughs> <laughs> this story ends <laughs> this story ends with us not letting anyone talk to the artist. And he's released three albums. All three of the albums have won Grammy for best contemporary blues and Mick Jagger and sting and, you know, E 40 and all these people now respect him and work with him and, you know, he respects them. So none of that would, have. and we don't let him take any notes. Nobody's allowed to talk to him about creative, nothing like what he says he wants to do. Is what we do. And it proved, you know what I'm saying, to be very,
1: very successful. Man, that's what's up. That's dope. Before we get to the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, I wanted to talk briefly about your ethics series, Hip Hop Uncovered. What is it about and why'd you do that project?
2: I'm super proud of that one, Bukari. And I feel like I'm hoping one day Obama tweets it because I'm going to get rid of any false modesty here. I believe it is currently the seminal documentary on hip hop. I don't think no one's done nothing this layered, you know what I'm saying, on the music. It's a look. So the simplest version of it is hip hop uncovered posits that hip hop is a first and foremost, a street music, right? And has remained a street music. And it gives the streets point of view to the history of this music through the eyes of five street legends who have influenced the music at the highest levels And as their lives evolved, so did the streets of America, and so did the music from a street perspective. And it's a story where then you get into these people's lives. And I think one of the things that's special about it is these are the people that live the lives rappers talk about, right? These are the people that really did all the legendary shit. They knocked out the police, they sold all the dope, and they truly, unlike, Them gangsters you see in movies and shit, they have redeemed themselves thoroughly. You know what I'm saying? Especially the lead producer who we partnered with, Big U. I mean, Bakari, he is, that's someone you should probably holler at. He is such a fucking factor in his community. You know what I'm saying? And his name was so certified as being something else. To me, it's the most American story you could tell. So we're very, very proud of it. And hopefully the, those old ass, I shouldn't say that, hopefully the Emmy voters will see that, you know, just because you see hip hop don't mean a substance there. And we go through the crack era and, you know, military. How can smart. people,
1: how can people find and watch it? You can find it on Hulu now. There you go. So now let's, let's get to the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Where does this project fall in the Marvel series? And how difficult is it, is it to write something that has to fit into a broader series that has such a dedicated fan base like Marvel does?
2: You feel, you feel, when you take on something like this, you feel a lot of pressure because Marvel's going to ask you to do your thing and make it your own, right? But at the same time, they and the fans are, all have expectations and there is this giant puzzle that you fit into. The way they do it is, and, but I think the reason they've had such an amazing run is they let people like me come in and do what we need to do and put our stamp on shit. And it gives each project its own pulse. So for me, when I come in there and I'm working with them to break this story, they're not telling, they literally will not tell you about none of the other shit they got going on. Right. You have no idea. But if I, let's say I'm writing a scene and I'm like, and then vision comes through the door Right. They're going to be like this. Oh, no, 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 bro. You can't. Vision can't walk through the door. There's something here happening. So they guide you to not destroy whatever else they're doing. And once you have the completed piece, Bakari, that's when they really do the thing that the fans love. What they let you create on your own and then they start plugging in the shit that you've done that naturally fits into the MCU. They, they retrofit. I'll give an example. We wrote about a city that was this lawless city that was going to, you know, put Sam and Bucky, you know, uncomfortable and have all this, you know, have all this danger or whatever. Right. And we based it on a real place that a friend of mine told me about. Once we were done with the first draft of the uh, series, Marvel said, well, what if that lawless city was Madripoor, which is where the mutants, you know, start to enter the Marvel universe. But they let you do your thing first. So all the connective tissue people see that most of that is retrofitted. Sometimes you build it in like I knew Wakanda, you know, I'm you're not going to do Black Captain America and not get Wakanda in there, you know what I'm saying? So,
1: um, but talk about the incorporation of a of a black superhero and black characters and how that added another layer of texture for how you approach this project, particularly how you built a writer's room that supported a black superhero and characters.
2: It it, it was it was the thing that most in my initial pitch to Marvel, it was they knew that they were not going to be able to avoid the blackness of this project. And they knew what I think the reason they they it was a competitive project. Right. I wanted it was that I leaned all the way into that. Like I felt like to hand a black man the stars and stripes and say you're going to be Captain America. You cannot skate around what that means you cannot have him like a lot of people thought after Avengers Endgame, we were gonna start off with Sam as Captain America and the government's gonna turn it, take it away. And to me, that was less honest than it don't have to be the government taking away. This dude's not, he got to go home to his family, right? He he himself is not comfortable with it. And Marvel, I was clear about that from the beginning. And they they were like, bro, do what you gotta do, you know what I'm saying? And and they supported going through. We the room was was uh, more than half the room was was uh, was black folk. And I think that's where little moments real, that are that are signature arise. For instance, that if you have a mostly black writer's room, they speak that silent language that America speaks. Like, hey, can we have a scene with Sam and Rhodey? They know already that everyone's going to be able to fill in the blanks of, man, this is the two black heroes in Marvel hanging out with each other. Of course they do that, right? They're the ones who catch the details like, well, you ain't no Malcolm or Mandela, you know what I'm saying? But they're like, those little details come from having that collective. And I got to admit, man, you know, people, you know, my folks who I came up with was like, I know Marvel was scared as fuck, you know, when he was doing this thing. I was going to ask, are
1: they going to let you, are they going to let you write another one? I mean, like... (laughs) I mean, uh, officially, I'm not allowed to speak on
2: nothing, but they are very, very happy with how this has been received. They know they have a powerful platform, Bakari, and
1: I think they're proud of it. My last question is going into this. I mean, people are going to be so engaged from an entertainment perspective as a writer. How do you balance what you're feeding us intellectually And and you still have to keep us entertained and engaged. Is that something you think about or you can just do both in one fell swoop?
2: You, You have to first and foremost, in my opinion, submit to the story and submit to the characters. But if you do your work up front, if you say these characters embody these conversations, right, then when they interact with each other, those conversations are happening without the characters directly doing it. And if you look at the comments online, people got it. Read you know what I'm saying? People completely understood what we were saying in the action and the drama without having to always
1: put it on its face. How can people watch it? Tell me, tell everybody, because this is the most important thing we got going right now. How can people uh, watch the Falcon and the Winter Soldier?
2: They, they can go on Disney Plus and watch it, support it, create energy around it. If you like it and you feel like this kind of storytelling is important, people, especially our people, we gotta prop it up and
1: we gotta, we gotta push it out. Let me just tell you my my chat groups, I got a, a top secret track group with a lot of 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 uh quote unquote intellectuals, I guess, and 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 news media and journalists and anchors and all that and everybody talking about it. So, and, and, you know, this is in the right direction. This has been one of the most exciting interviews I've had my brother, somebody who I feel I can connect to somebody who speaks the same language, but has reached a new pinnacle of success. And I just wish you bigger and better things in the future, some awards, some stuff to put on your shelf behind you, man. And uh, you're in my prayers, man. Certainly.
2: Hey, I appreciate it, man. This was a really special interview. Thank you, bro.
0: Before I let you go, Shout out to everybody who celebrated Juneteenth. It's now a new federal holiday. I'm excited we get another day to click out, but y'all know here on the Bukari Sellers podcast, we talk about tangible policy proposals all the time. And so while having Juneteenth is a great day, uh, we also need the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. We need the John Lewis Voting Rights Bill. Uh, we need HR One. We need actual, tangible pieces of legislation that help improve the plight and lessen the load of people of color in this country. So, Y'all celebrate Juneteenth every year. My federal employees deserve it. We deserve it. I'm glad that we're actually trying to learn about this country's history. Uh, It still amazes me that people didn't know about Tolson to Watchmen, but I digress. And so celebrate Juneteenth, but please don't stop knocking on doors, registering voters, and holding your elected officials accountable. Because while I want to be sure to use my green egg more often, throwing some meat on the grill, we don't need holidays as much as we need proposals that help make our life better. And that's that on that. We'll see you on Thursday.